Welcome to the Informed Pregnancy and Parenting Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Elliot Berlin, and today we're discussing childhood vaccinations. Hold on to your seat. Our guest is a pediatrician who is outspoken on the topic and has found himself swarmed in controversy. He combines mainstream medicine with a holistic approach to pediatric care. He's an author, fellow podcaster, proud father of three boys, and a self-admitted sci-fi geek. Dr. Bob Sears, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Elliot. Yes, uh, great to be here. Uh, It's really great to have you here because unlike a lot of pediatricians, I believe, who get a concentrated amount of information about vaccines and pass that on to their patients and the parents of their patients, you're constantly researching this area. You wrote years ago a giant book about it before people were really even talking about it, Um, and now you're podcasting about it. And I think that just saying the word childhood vaccination like gets people's shoulders up to their ears, and most people are either like very, very energetically quote-unquote pro-vaccine or anti-vaccine, whereas I think actually most of us are somewhere in the middle. And I'm honored and very curious to be talking to you and to find out more information about vaccines. And I know our audience is constantly looking for information and asking questions, and it's hard to find it without all that emotion attached to it on one side or the other. So thanks for joining us. Let's go back to the beginning, uh, the history of vaccines. How did we get to where we are today? <laughs> the history. Well, I, I don't think you, In or a nutshell. I, you and I were not around we um, when vaccines started. But um, I mean, I think you know, vaccination, I think, started out as, as a, a good idea in that we were trying to eliminate some really horrible diseases. I think it started with uh, smallpox. You know, that, that could be a very serious disease for people. Um, then it kind of uh, morphed into wanting to try to prevent uh, you know, tetanus polio, you know, things that, that can really kill people or, or, or leave people, you know, um, permanently harmed, you know, for their life. And that was kind of the, the original intent. And I think it was, it was very uh, well meant. But I think um, where we've gotten today, I mean, not to go through the whole history, but we've kind of changed from only giving the vaccines that we should be giving you know, with that kind of that original intent of protecting people from horrifying diseases to now we're basically giving every vaccine that we can give. Mm-hmm. Like if they can make it, then then people will get it. And then for routine diseases, harmless diseases like like chicken pox and, you know, you know, vomiting and diarrhea illnesses, uh, you know, germs that uh, that cause ear infections, um, even diseases babies don't catch like hepatitis B or largely harmless diseases like hepatitis A, which is harmless for children. Mm-hmm. Um, it, we've kind of lost the original mission of vaccination to where now it's just we're going to make a whole bunch of vaccines and everyone needs to get in line and get every single vaccine because every single vaccine is thought to be equally important as the next. Mm-hmm. There's not a hierarchy. You just have to accept the whole schedule. And, and anyone who questions the whole schedule is is a, is a doubter and is a science denier, right? So that's kind of where we got from the history till today, and 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 it's uh, I think that's why a lot of people are questioning. So what you, we're doing. if I'm understanding this correctly, you don't doubt the science of vaccines that you can inoculate somebody against a disease that could be paralyzing or or life threatening. Right, right. I definitely would agree that vaccines work. Mm-hmm. They don't always work. Of and, and they kind of work in a variety of ways. Um, and um, I think when they design a vaccine and then they, they're trying to get a vaccine to prevent a disease or prevent the complications of a disease from happening, I think they, they succeed in that. 
I think some people in the uh, who are on the very uh, the side of the debate who are completely against vaccines will claim that vaccines really don't work at all. And and in my opinion, and I think that the science shows that they do work. But where I think people are sort of misled is that people think vaccines are somehow this magical shield that completely surrounds you and prevents you from catching the disease 100%. So you won't you won't get sick, you're not going to be contagious to other people. And um, you're protecting not only yourself, but the whole community, because every vaccine is so magical, it just works that way. Whereas that's not true for most vaccines. Most vaccines will allow you to catch the germs and become contagious to others. You will just not feel as sick. Mm-hmm. So you're not going to have complications of the disease. Which is a good thing. Right, which is a good thing for you as an individual. Mm-hmm. But most vaccines don't have a community oh, public no health benefit because it's, it's not preventing you from spreading the disease. And that's where I think the disservice is and then the misinformation in the, where the mainstream medical community tries to get everyone to believe that every single vaccine 100% protects you in every single way and the community. So that's kind of why I'm, I'm in this this educational fight is trying to help people understand the truth about vaccines and what's really true and what's not true mm-hmm. so they can make better decisions it's for their tricky. kids. It's tricky. It's hard to, yeah. it's, you know, all of yeah. us want the best for our children. And mm-hmm. um, when it comes to vaccines, when it comes to any other decision, generally speaking, the way healthcare works is you're presented an idea. We're going to give this to your, your sick child to help them get better. This is the pros and cons of doing it versus not doing it. What would you like to do? But when it comes to vaccines, it doesn't really work that way. It's like you do this or you are like a horrible person, both as a parent for your child and as a member of society, because you are putting your child and you're putting society at risk. And it's like you said, it's not for a particular vaccine. It's all or nothing. If you want to do them slower, if you want to do not too many at a time, you know, separate them out and not do them at the same time, or if you want to pick and choose vaccines, there's this massive backlash against you. And I I don't Mm -hmm. fully understand where that comes from because I guess what you're saying is also there's the belief that if a particular person doesn't vaccinate their child against a disease, then they are putting the whole community at risk of getting that disease. But what I hear you saying is that even vaccinated kids are not going to protect the community from that disease because they can still carry it and they can still spread it. They themselves may not get sick, but they can still spread it to somebody else. Right. And, and it varies uh, depending on what disease you're talking about. And, and that this whole conversation, you, you would have a different conversation depending on what disease. Sure. You know, like, like, for example, I would say the measles vaccine is one vaccine that for the most part will prevent you from catching the disease and becoming contagious to others. Mm-hmm. So the measles vaccine is one vaccine that does have a public health benefit. There are drawbacks to getting it and there are side effects, but that is one vaccine that does work for the community. But um, the whooping cough vaccine does not work for the community. Neither does diphtheria vaccine. The polio vaccine actually doesn't prevent people from catching the disease and spreading it. Neither does the flu vaccine. So there's a lot of... So, lot of well, the flu's a big one because, right, right, you know, right. um, it's encouraged now for like everybody always every year. And um, there are people who are vehemently on top of who's got it and who doesn't 
because if you don't have it, you can't be around me and my family. Right, which makes no sense. And, and, and the reason you just said what you just said, and I know you don't believe it, I don't think, but most people believe what you just said is true, that if you don't have your flu shot, you shouldn't be around me because the medical community has has gotten the public to buy the, the lie that the flu vaccine works that way and prevents you from catching the flu and becoming contagious to others. They don't have any research that has shown that the flu vaccine does anything except make you feel a little less sick when you catch the flu. Mm-hmm. You're still going to be contagious and spread it around to others, whether or not you have the vaccine. So that's why... Um, that's if it happens to work that year. Right, yeah, if it happens to work that year. But you know, hospitals will mandate it for all their doctors and employees um, so that you know they're saying it's because we don't want you to spread the flu to all our patients. Right. But it doesn't work that way. And that's I what mean, pisses me off when, when we see science and medicine do things that don't have anything to back it up. They're and, not and, scientific or medical. Right, exactly. Uh, and it, it could conceivably backfire because if I have a flu shot and now I'm not feeling symptomatic of the flu because of my flu shot – does not mean I'm not carrying the flu. So if I was sneezing and coughing, I, A, wouldn't go to work, and B, you you wouldn't let me around your child, pro- rightfully so. Right. But if I'm, I'm not symptomatic, doesn't mean I'm not carrying it. So there's no way to flag who you really should let around your kids or not, not let around exactly. them. Exactly. See, it's not black and white. Mm-hmm. I mean, we've been talking for just a few minutes, and already we've raised you know a dozen questions that would make people think, hey, this this decision isn't just as cut and dry as as, uh, as everyone claims it is. Right. So that is definitely, for me, a take-home message, which is that these things are not black and white. Mm-hmm. And that's what I said at the beginning. There's some people who are vehemently pro-vaccine, must do every vaccine on time for every kid no matter what. And other people are very anti-vaccine, which is no vaccines ever. It's a big conspiracy. But I think most people are actually not on those polar ends who make the most noise, but somewhere in between. We believe that vaccines work. We believe they can be helpful. We also believe that they may not always be necessary and that there may be benefits in picking and choosing when and how many and, and things like that. There is, it's not black and white. There's a lot of gray here. Right. And, and I think one reason I'm really in this fight and I'm more vocal about this fight now is um, – is as the government is trying to make vaccines mandatory for everybody, mm-hmm. um, state by state, you know, school by school, and and you know, I, I'm worried twenty years from now they're just going to be flat out mandatory for everybody, no question. Mm-hmm. Whereas I believe, like you do, that the majority of America is really in the middle when it comes to vaccines. Mm-hmm. They might be for them, uh, or they might be, or they might choose not to get them. But the majority, I think, would agree they should not be mandatory. Mm-hmm. We can't mandate a complicated medical procedure for every child and every adult when, when some people are going to be harmed by severe side effects. So, it's unethical to mandate. So, so I think the reason I get out there and like to talk about this is I want that middle ground to stand up to, to mandates and stand up to the government and say, no, I want to choose vaccines. You don't get to choose for me. And we can't just let the the fringes who are either for or against speak for us. We as a middle ground need to speak up and, and tell the government it's a, a medical choice that everyone gets to make. Yeah, the middle tends to be the quiet group. Right. The right. large, quiet majority. Yeah, the silent majority. Yeah. Um, but you said two things. First of all, I think that most people would agree that if the notion that giving every kid every vaccine or a particular vaccine 
was going to protect the rest of the community, society, then you'd have a societal obligation to give your kid the vaccine, even if it's not in your kid's best interest. I think most people would go there. And I think that that's the understanding. That's the message that's out there. It's fairly undisputed. Anybody who tries to dispute it just gets attacked, uh, you know, on social media, regular media. Their whole life gets destroyed. And so the prevailing message is if you know somebody who doesn't give any particular vaccine, they're a threat to society. So that's why... I think people are less opposed to the mandate. The second thing is what down – because you mentioned like maybe it's not the greatest thing for this child, right? So even if a vaccine is not necessary, what could be the downside of giving it? Like why don't we just all give them and if the kid needed it, they have it and if they didn't need it, so they have it anyway. Right. Well, well, the the downsides can be very extreme for a a few children, a small number of children. And – Ironically, the measles vaccine, or it's really the measles, mumps, rubella vaccine, one of the vaccines that that does have a public health benefit, and as you're suggesting, maybe there is an argument for public health mandates because it it can work that way, that vaccine has some of the worst potential side effects. Such as? Uh, Basically, the, the vaccine can give you every complication that the disease itself can give you. Hmm. such as brain swelling and inflammation, uh, brain injury, seizures, severe intestinal uh, reactions, uh, chronic intestinal inflammation. It can uh, give you severe allergic problems. It can trigger allergic disorders, and it can trigger autoimmune disorders mm-hmm. because it's a live virus vaccine. Okay. So both the, both the measles, mumps, and rubella diseases can give you these problems, but so can the vaccine. Okay. And so that's why I think even with a public health benefit to a particular vaccine, I think ethically speaking, you, you can't mandate can't it on people it. When, when the reactions are, are so potentially severe. Okay. So mandate aside, just as a parent wanting to do the best thing for my kid, yeah. right? Right. Because that's what I think a lot of your listeners, sorry to interrupt, but a lot of your listeners are, they're kind of, I think, more in that spot. They want to make the, the best decision for themselves and their child. They just want their kid to be healthy. Yeah. They want their child to be harmed by medical treatment, but they also don't want their child to be harmed by an infectious disease. They're just going to – they just want to think, you know, what can I do to raise the healthiest baby during pregnancy and afterwards? And that's what everyone wants to uh, achieve when they're looking at vaccines. Agreed. Right. So I, I think our patients also would think about the society as a whole. But step one is – Mm -hmm. and our listeners. Step one is, let me just look at my kid and look at this decision I have to make in relation to my kid in a vacuum. There are these diseases, measles, mumps, and rubella. What are the chances my kid gets this disease? What happens to my child if they get this disease? And on the other side of the coin, there is this vaccine that can protect my child against these diseases. How effective are they? You mentioned the downsides that are sort of the same complications and symptoms that could potentially happen if they actually got the disease just from getting the vaccine. What are the odds of that happening and how, how is that treated if it happens? These are the things that I would normally just sit down and, and brainstorm before making a choice. So where can I get information about that? <laughs> I know, right? Well, it's, it's a huge decision and, and uh, I'll answer that. But let me start with the worst thing you can do as, as a new parent is to not even think about this and not research it and just wait for your first doctor's appointment with your pediatrician mm-hmm. at two months of age when uh, eight vaccines are due and and have that be the first time you start you investigating start vaccines. Yeah. That's way too late. 
it, it takes you weeks or months to really research vaccines. And yeah, if you're going to get all the vaccines automatically and you don't want to do the research, sure. You just wait and ask your doctor about it. But if you are like most medical consumers, you want informed consent, you want the risks versus benefits, you have to start reading. You have to you know, read a few books, uh, read you know the disease information on the Centers for Disease Control website. Um, I would say don't read the CDC vaccine propaganda, you know, so, so much. But how but their disease information. Out, yeah, how do you well, sort out? Well, well, I think the the CDC. I think they're accurate when it comes to portraying disease information. Oh, what would happen if you got right? Right. Okay. Right. Um, but when it comes to vaccines, I mean, the CDC is is very much in favor of everybody vaccinating, and so their vaccination information is going to be a little bit but slanted they, towards encouraging. On the, you could start to think about drug companies because they make billions of dollars off the vaccine, and mm -hmm. they have incentive for every person buying every product that they manufacture. Right? right. What does the CDC have to gain by spewing propaganda? Like, why would they? Why? Well, well, the um, the CDC has a lot of conflict of interest going on. Because, uh, for example, one of the I think one of the biggest, uh, most egregious examples of conflict of interest in the CDC was the head of the CDC for about eight years. You know, for, from about two thousand on, for about eight years, the head of the CDC owned stock in a vaccine manufacturing company, Ooh. and that head of the CDC guided all the vaccine safety research for almost a decade. Interesting. And then when his or her job was over, after eight years or so, after waiting a year, which is a mandatory you know, waiting period after you leave government, before you can go into industry, she was hired to lead that vaccine company's vaccine research division. Oh, I see. And then help develop more vaccines. And so that's why, that's probably one of the biggest examples of why I think you can't necessarily trust what the CDC says about vaccines. Now that's just at the top of the CDC. All along the way, a number of CDC employees and researchers own stock in pharmaceutical companies. They get research grants from pharmaceutical companies. They do lectures. You know, they, they go on you know uh, continuing medical education trips paid for by by vaccine manufacturers. So it's not totally so unbiased. It, it is not unbiased whatsoever. And I'm I'm being kind of nice about that. <laughs> okay. I would say you know if if some of your listeners really know what's going on, and, and in fact, don't take my word for it. Um, there's a group of 12 senior scientists at the CDC, not just low-level people, senior scientists, who wrote a letter two years ago to the government complaining that the CDC is, is rife with conflict of interest. They've lost their mission of objectively safeguarding Americans' health. Mm -hmm. And they're they're completely influenced by pharmaceutical companies now. So there's no more objectivity. They call themselves a scientists for preserving integrity, diligence, and uh, ethics in research, or spider. Mm. So you can Google search CDC spider. Uh, you'll you'll get some spider bite information, but you also see uh, <laughs> that, that group of twelve yeah. senior scientists that are speaking out that the CDC. Uh, has some huge conflicts Which is of interest. Hard. So yeah. it's really hard to find, um, like, just purely objective information. Right, right. And so I think as a, as a consumer of healthcare, you just have to look on online at respectable websites, uh, medical websites, um, websites that maybe are not influenced by pharma. 
do your research and reading. And you asked the kind of a question at the beginning of, of kind of your last statement of just sort of a parent trying to figure out what is the safest thing to do. And, you know, we don't want a, a bad disease side effect, but we also don't want a vaccine side effect. In all my 20 years of being a pediatrician, Elliot, I've uh, had the privilege to take care of over 10,000, you know, many thousands of families come through my office completely unvaccinated because I'm one of the only doctors in all of Orange County who will take patients who don't uh, want the full vaccine schedule. So they're all kicked out of their doctor's offices and they all come to my office. So I've had the privilege of watching all these kids grow over these last 20 years. And I haven't had a single child harmed by any of these diseases Mm -hmm. that we're vaccinating against. I haven't had a vaccinated child harmed or an unvaccinated child harmed. I've, I've had kids catch these diseases and I've had to hospitalize a few, but they're pretty routine hospitalizations. And the kids just needed IV fluids or IV antibiotics or something. In a country where we have excellent health care um, and access to medical care, the chance that your unvaccinated child is going to be harmed by a serious vaccine preventable disease is incredibly small. It's incredibly small. And so when you, you said earlier, parents don't want their kids to be harmed by these diseases. The, I think the misconception is that likelihood is high. Mm-hmm. You know, if you don't vaccinate, your kid's dead. If you don't vaccinate, your kid's going to catch all kinds of horrible things. Whereas the reality, yeah. I think, is the chance of that happening is very, very tiny. When you accept vaccines, except when you, especially when you accept the entire vaccine schedule, you are... accepting the possibility that your child's going to have a bad reaction. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, your child will probably not have a bad reaction. But by actively vaccinating, you're taking an active risk that something possibly could happen. Whereas by not vaccinating, it's it's called a passive risk. Right. Uh, And I think a lot of parents are more comfortable with a passive risk that's incredibly unlikely than taking the active risk of accepting the complete CDC vaccine schedule. Sure, but there's also, I think, some parents take comfort in the community norm. And since Mm -hmm. the community norm is to vaccinate against Mm -hmm. everything, they do what is the best, you know, the most prevalent thinking at Mm -hmm. the time and um, hope for the best. But I think anybody who doesn't vaccinate and their kid does become harmed by a disease that they could have been vaccinated against will kick themselves hard. Oh, yes. Never forgive themselves. And on the flip side, I think anybody who gives them a vaccine that they potentially didn't need especially, and even if they did need it, they give the vaccine and the vaccine causes harm to the child, they will also never forgive themselves. And right. I think on both sides of the uh, of the vocal ends of the of the spectrum where you have people more extremist in their opinions are those groups of parents who genuinely feel like they should have or shouldn't have given the vaccine and they suffered the consequence. The question is, I'd love to just go into a little app and say, what are the odds of my kid getting this <laughs> or the odds of my kid being harmed by that? And also the, the side effects, the potential complications that you mentioned from giving even just the MMR vaccine, are those disputable facts that those are potential complications? Well, that's a a, a wonderful question. I'm I'm glad you asked it the way you did, because um, for doctors, mostly pediatricians and and family practice doctors, the way we're trained in medical school is no, those bad things can't happen from vaccines. Um, We are literally taught that you can never prove a vaccine caused a terrible reaction. 
even though, for example, on the MMR vaccine uh, CDC information sheet where it gives you all the warnings about what could happen from the vaccine, Mm -hmm. even though it says there your child could go into a coma from the vaccine, it says that with other vaccines, doctors are taught that because you can't prove it happened, that we're just not going to believe it happened. It's impossible. It can't happen. So that you can't prove that if a child goes into a coma, it was because they got that vaccine. Right. Like say they go into a coma the night that they got a vaccine. Because there's no way to prove it actually was the vaccine, they might have just randomly gone into a coma just for no reason, which which is, you know, obviously not true. But the reason I'm making this a point is there's this huge disconnect, huge disconnect between what all the warnings are about vaccines on the vaccine uh, uh, product inserts and on the CDC warning sheets about vaccines, a huge disconnect where they list all these possible bad reactions and what doctors in the pediatric community believe is reality. Mm-hmm. We're, again, we're trained these bad reactions don't happen, but it's all over the fine print. It's all over the research community. All the researchers who develop vaccines and who study vaccine side effects, they all know these side effects happen, but pediatricians don't, and they don't believe they happen. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of where it does a huge disservice, I think, to the, the consumer, because then the pediatricians won't warn the consumers. And then uh, if the patient doesn't know enough to ask or to do their own research, they're just going to accept it. And even when a pediatrician does see something bad happen, in their mind, it's not connected to the vaccine, even though it happened the same day. So I'm just going to move on and, and not even write it down as a vaccine reaction or warn the parents that it was a vaccine reaction. Right. So that means that, you know, a doctor who believes that there's no harm potential for giving this vaccine, but there is life-saving potential benefit in giving this vaccine, mm-hmm. would be doing the right thing by recommending that every kid get every vaccine, right? Right, in their mind, There's no yes. potential harm. But the, I think that's where they act out of. But that's what I was saying. I feel like you versus other pediatricians go beyond that data that you were given and do your own research and see a bigger picture. Yeah, yeah. And, and I, I really don't blame other pediatricians at all because I used to be there. I basically believed everything about vaccines I was taught in medical school, which was very little other than they are completely safe and they're very effective. And that's all we're taught. And if you don't have a passion as a doctor to research it further, then that's what you're going to operate on. Mm -hmm. And I think every pediatrician kind of finds their passion in their practice whether it's maybe you like uh, developmental disorders, you know, you like you like treating and, and dealing with those. Maybe you like heart problems or you know allergic disorders. You know, everyone kind of has their their passion, or they're just a generalist, and they'll spend all their time researching that specific area. For me, Elliot, it was vaccines. I, I developed this passion, and in medical school, I got fascinated by it. So I basically devoted my entire life to reading everything, spending years researching things that no other pediatrician is going to read because it's not their passion. They have no reason to read everything because they're just uh, operating under you know what they were originally taught, whereas I think I was prompted to, to look deeper and, and kind of devote my whole career to this, to understanding it better than, than most doctors. I sure hope that you come back on our podcast again. We're not done. 
Okay, good. Only good. halfway through. Yeah. Oh, good. But yeah. I'm only a smidgen into what I want to talk to you about. <laughs> um, there's so much yeah. more that I want to know because yeah. because it's it's very hard to find point of view on mm-hmm. this topic. Um, right. We're going to take a quick break. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back with Dr. Bob Sears. <laughs> Hey everyone, it's Dr. Berlin, and I want to talk to you about something that is close to my heart, literally, omega-3. It's a crucial nutrient that's sadly overlooked. With 95% of women deficient, Needed, the supplement brand I trust, created their brand new omega-3 soft gels. Designed by perinatal experts, they support you and your baby's well-being from fertility to pregnancy and beyond. Unlike other brands, Needed's Omega-3 is sustainable, pesticide-free, and third-party tested for purity. Plus, my favorite, it has a milder taste and smell, perfect for sensitive mamas. Don't wait. Visit thisisneeded.com and use code BERLIN to get 20% off your initial order. Experience the needed difference, consciously crafted for your health and the planet. Welcome back to the Informed Pregnancy and Parenting Podcast. We are talking to Dr. Bob Sears about childhood vaccinations. All right. Um, many of our patients are pregnant, and there are vaccines that are recommended during mm-hmm. pregnancy. Can you talk a little bit to those? Yes. Um, every pregnant woman is recommended to get a uh, flu vaccine during pregnancy if, if you're pregnant during flu season. And then every woman is recommended to get a Tdap vaccine, which is tetanus, diphtheria, and whooping cough mm-hmm. with every pregnancy, not just one time during your pregnancy, but, but with every subsequent pregnancy, you're recommended to get both of those vaccines again. How is Tdap different than DTAP? Yeah, so DTAP is the children's version. Uh, the children's version is actually higher dose. Mm-hmm. The, the Tdap is the scaled down adult version because adults react horribly to the full dose of DTAP vaccine. There's something unique about DTAP vaccine that makes people very achy, very feverish. Their body gets very inflamed, and, and they, they feel very sick from it. So Just adults, though? Yeah, not, just adults. Not kids? Well, it can happen to kids, too, but it happens more to adults. And so in order to, to make it tolerable for their adult population, they had to, to lower the dose. And that's the version that, so that adults and pregnant women get. It's a DTAP light? Yeah, DTAP light. Sure. Um, <laughs> so is the purpose of giving it, because you said every pregnancy, is the purpose of giving it to a pregnant woman so that the baby will get it while she's pregnant, like some mm-hmm. immunity before it's born? Right. No. Well, um, kind of yes, kind of no. So the purpose for a woman to get a flu vaccine during pregnancy is because um, we don't want her to catch the flu and and have complications from the flu during pregnancy. Okay, and that and it kind of started with the the swine flu and a little bit before the swine flu. People kind of had the misconception that the flu was way more risky to pregnant women than non-pregnant women, mm-hmm. and they thought that pregnant women would die left and right if they caught the flu while pregnant, or they would miscarry, or, or there'd be, yeah, be complications, so complications for, the baby. for the baby. And it's really not true. So the research has not actually panned out to show that that statement is actually true. At any point during the pregnancy? Correct. Okay. Correct. So Could make uh, labor and delivery pretty uncomfortable. 
Well, yeah, well, I, sure, why not? But uh, but the reality is the the flu really is no more dangerous to a pregnant woman than it is to a non-pregnant woman. So the, the purpose of the Tdap vaccine is not so much that we worry about tetanus or diphtheria during pregnancy. They worry about um, whooping cough in a newborn baby. Okay. They don't want a newborn to catch whooping cough in the first couple months of his or her life before we can get the baby his own whooping cough vaccine at two months. So in order to protect the baby between birth and two months of age, they give the mom the whooping cough vaccine during the third trimester so that some of that vaccine-induced immunity from the mom goes into the baby. So she's passing antibodies onto the baby? Right. Okay. Exactly. Before the baby's born. Right. Before the baby's born so that when the baby is born and he comes out, he has some immunity to whooping cough. What about the non-pregnant partner? Um, well, the non-pregnant partner, it doesn't matter whether whether he or she gets a, gets a whooping cough vaccine because that vaccine doesn't stop you from catching the disease and passing okay. it on to someone else. So there's the cocoon concept of right. surrounding the baby with people who couldn't possibly catch it because they were vaccinated. You're not buying that. No, no. In fact, they've they've proven the cocoon concept does not work okay. for whooping cough vaccine. It doesn't work for flu vaccine. I mean, it, but if if all this is about whooping cough, why don't we just give a P? You know what they they've developed a P vaccine and P they're being researching pertussis, it. Which is we, uh, yeah, I know, I know, I, I know what you meant. Maybe I know you know, but yeah, I'm just saying for the uh, yeah the know, listeners because uh, you said because right. you said it was uh, tetanus, diphtheria, and whooping cough, but right. the P is pertussis, which is whooping cough, right? Which causes whooping cough, right? So if you're saying that it's not really about the tetanus and the diphtheria. Do people get diphtheria? I've never no, not in the US heard of anymore. anybody ever no. having diphtheria no. here. You're right. So it's all about whooping cough, and they actually do have a whooping cough only vaccine that they're researching mm-hmm. that they might switch over to at, at some point in the future. But for me, and, and you do a lot of pregnancy uh, work. That's that's your your job and your your podcast. I mean, how careful is every pregnant woman about every single thing that goes into their body? You know, you won't take Tylenol without cringing when you're pregnant. Right. You'll eat everything totally organic. You, you won't take any medications unless you absolutely have to. Yet, for some reason, somehow, all the chemicals that are in the flu vaccine, like mercury, the chemicals that are in the, uh, the Tdap vaccine, like formaldehyde, and uh, numerous other chemicals, somehow they're magically safe to inject while you're pregnant simply because it's a vaccine, because vaccines have this magic safety to them, as if there's, if there's chemicals in there, they can't possibly harm you. And that, that's the mentality I think a lot of people have, whereas the reality, we have not researched these to show that they are safe to the unborn baby, safe to the developing brain of a fetus. And, and so I think people need to be uh, aware of that when they're making the decision about this vaccine. There's, there's very little safety research to show these chemicals are safe. So I think babies. there's two potential responses to that. People who are very careful um, very frequently check with their doctor all the time. Let me see what my doctor says about this, my right. doctor says. But you're saying the doctors are sort of programmed to say there's no downside, only an upside. Right. If, so, if the CDC approves it, that's good enough for me. Right. right. And then the other thing is maybe they are willing to take a risk of formaldehyde and other toxic elements in the vaccine, even though they're pregnant, because what you said is what if they get whooping cough in the first couple of months of life? The baby does, right? So what are the potential risks there? First of all, again, it's like what are the odds? 
but also if it happened, what would happen to the baby? Like I, right. that, people might say, I'm, I'm willing to take the risk of toxins in the vaccine because I want to prevent the bigger risk of whatever happens to a baby who gets whooping cough. Right, and they very well can take that that risk. I mean, of course, people can choose to get the Tdap vaccine or the flu vaccine. What kind of bothers me, though, Elliot, is they approved the use of these vaccines in pregnancy especially the Tdap vaccine, without doing any research to show that it even worked. Mm -hmm. They started giving it to every pregnant woman, assuming it would give immunity to the babies when they're born, but they didn't even know. Does that research still not exist? Um, There's one research study now Mm -hmm. that has shown it might reduce the baby's chance of catching whooping cough in the first two months by half. By 50%. Okay. So it's so, something. It's right, one study. It is something. It is, it's one study. It's something. It's a very small study. Uh, but it bothers me when the public health departments and the CDC make vaccine recommendations based on assumptions mm-hmm. without any research to show that you're taking a risk by getting the shot. We don't even know if it's going to help you yet. Mm-hmm. Now, seven years later, we have one research study that shows it maybe has a 50% chance of helping you. What happens to babies and who get, you know, whooping cough in a month? Oh, it's terrible. It's a terrible disease. I mean, babies, uh, you know, very tragically, we have about 10 babies in the United States every year who die of whooping cough. Mm-hmm. And uh, every single one of those babies is three months or younger. Mm-hmm. So that, that, so so when that you is get the it, window of, of risk for babies. Once you've gotten past the three to four month of age, then even if you get whooping cough, the risk of death goes down significantly. Yes. And you can treat it. Right. It's almost zero once you're past four months of age. Okay. So there's logic behind why we try to prevent those babies from getting whooping cough earlier on. Correct. There is logic. And I wish we had a way to prevent it that was 100% safe and had the research to show that it's 100% safe. Okay. So those are the two that are recommended during pregnancy. Right. Are there some kids who are at greater risk for adverse reactions to vaccines than other kids? And is there a way to identify who they are? You know what? Uh, if you can figure that out, Elliot, give me a call. Oh, you Let don't know. me know. Um, <laughs> okay. The research on that is is preliminary. People that, that work in my field of, of trying to you know research uh, vaccine safety, they're working really hard to try to figure out how you can identify who the, the children are that are going to respond very poorly to vaccines before you vaccinate. It involves genetics. It involves your metabolism. Some children just have this susceptibility to having a really bad vaccine reaction. Mm-hmm. And we will someday be able to figure out who those kids are. I think we're close. But I think there's a drawback because everyone who's researching that idea is in the alternative uh, fields of medicine. Mm-hmm. Because mainstream medicine, to them, there is no risk. Right. And, and so why would, he, would we even research who vaccines are going to be risky for? Because they're not risky to anybody. Right. That's Even just doing the research gives the legitimacy to the fact right. that there might be risk. Exactly. So, so it's, it's going to be – it might be a long time coming before we know that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Have you heard of homeopathic vaccines? Yes, yeah. Can you tell me more about those? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, you know, you, I think most people know about homeopathy. You're, you're giving tiny, tiny little doses of the germ. Mm-hmm. You know, I originally sourced from the germ. It's diluted down uh, many, many times. You're, you're barely getting anything, but it's just enough for your immune system to, to possibly create some immunity 
to that that germ in the homeopathic vaccine. That's the theory. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure if it works because there's very little research that, that has been done on homeopathic vaccines to show they work. There's been a little bit of research on, on a few of the vaccines, mostly done many decades ago, where some researchers demonstrated that they did help reduce outbreaks and, and prevent the spread of disease. But it's very minimal. So I think the bottom line is we don't know if homeopathic vaccines work. I think if you generally believe in homeopathy, uh, in the theory that it works, then, you know, you, you probably would believe that the homeopathic vaccines are doing something. But I can't find any homeopaths that agree that the science is very solid on, mm-hmm. on them working yet, though. So okay. it's a question. That's fair. Mm-hmm. Uh, Do you know anything different than me? I don't, no, you, I don't know. You're in that uh, field a little bit. At uh, least in yeah, your colleagues. I'm, not, I'm in a more holistic field, and I hear people talking about homeopathic vaccines, um, and there appear to be individuals focusing on using homeopathy to mimic medical vaccines, but uh, th- that they do a lot of it, but I still haven't seen any research on it. Right. Um, in... California, for example, there used to be a personal belief exemption that a parent could just decide that a particular vaccine or all the vaccines are not in the best interest of their child and they don't want to do it and they would sign an exemption and be done. Mm -hmm. Then it changed to you could only get an exemption after you had a conversation with a pediatrician and the pediatrician signed off on the conversation and said, yes, we, we chatted about vaccines and they still do not want to do vaccines. And then that was taken away altogether, right? There's a Senate bill that went through that said, basically, we're not mandating that you do vaccines or go to prison. We're <laughs> mandating that if you don't do vaccines, your child can't go to school, public school, private school, daycare. What are your thoughts on that? Like, Presumably, the argument is if your child is not vaccinated against a particular vaccine, they are putting the other people in that childhood group setting at risk. Now, I know you've already talked about some of the vaccines where that – no, and even those vaccines where you say it doesn't, you know, it doesn't fully protect, does it protect at all? Well, it doesn't protect at all from the spread from Mm -hmm. person to person. It will protect an individual from feeling sick. Right, but but right. so so it, it wouldn't make community sense to tell this child you can't go to school because you don't have that vaccine, right? It would almost make more sense to tell the parents give the kid the vaccine and go to or go to jail because we're worried about your kid. <laughs> right? right, right, yeah. But we're not saying we're worried about that kid. Right. We're saying we're worried about that kid infecting other kids. But in fact, having the vaccine doesn't protect other kids. Uh, Absolutely. And that's what really pissed me off the most about this law and how all the legislators just stood there and let it pass because nobody asked the the two authors of this law, why are you mandating vaccines under the category that you just described, Elliot? Why are you mandating vaccines that don't prevent the spread of diseases within schools? Sure. I mean, let's talk about mandating vaccines that do prevent the spread. But why are you adding all these other vaccines in there that make no difference for the school? And and the reason is, again, because as, as the legislators see it, every vaccine is so magically wonderful that there's got to be some benefit that it's okay to mandate them. And and that's really why I'm so much uh, louder about this issue these days than I used to be mm-hmm. is, 
it's no longer about just helping families, you know, make an educated decision, you know, about vaccines. Now it's about families' rights are being taken away. Families' rights to be a, a, a citizen that's allowed to go to school. Now we're creating a, a class of people that are second-class citizens. They don't have the same rights as others because they're somehow dirty and contagious because they're not complying with uh, the idea that the government thought these vaccines, you know, should be mandated. So, and again, I think the fact that they mandated vaccines that don't matter for a public health benefit and mandated uh, sexually transmitted disease vaccines for uh, child care and for kindergartners, that should piss off the middle ground. That- you know, this quiet, this silent majority, they should be angry about that. Not accepting it. You, are you talking about hepatitis B? Yeah, hepatitis yeah. B. Which you mostly would get from, you know, sloppy IV drug use, like using dirty needles or right. from promiscuous sex with multiple partners or prostitute yes. sex. And presumably most people don't let their, you know, three-month-olds do that. Yes, but let's just... mandate it for all daycare and, and, and school-aged children. So for a devil's advocate, what if the parents have hepatitis B and they're – then yes, then then it's probably a good idea for that child to get the vaccine because the research shows if parents have hepatitis B, even if they're really careful raising a child, there's about a 30% chance that their child will catch hepatitis B just during all the, the 18 years of, of familial Intimate, contact. Yeah, contact. Right, right. So, but then I think then the argument, the next step in that argument goes, what if parents, A, don't know that they have hepatitis B or don't admit that they have hepatitis no, B? No, they know. Every pregnant woman is screened. Mm-hmm. Um, hepatitis B is interesting in that it, when adults catch Hep B, most of them fight it off and it goes away. Mm-hmm. Only a very small minority of them become chronic carriers and then you're screened during pregnancy, so they'll find it in a mom. For the so mom. she'll know, and, and she'll know how to treat her baby. And yeah, it might stay hidden in a dad, because mm-hmm. dads aren't routinely screened. But again, this is not a school decision. This is not a school decision well, that, in a that daycare, warrants mandating it. Again, thinking you're playing, out loud. You know, in a, in a yeah. daycare with little babies where I don't know how intimate you need to get, but changing diapers and— No, no. no. It's like there has to that. be— Blood uh, contact has to go from from one person into the other person. So, so what, if, what if a worker at a daycare or a child at a daycare, if their bloods could conceivably mix? Um, that, I mean, the odds are going downhill now. Right, right. The <laughs> odds are going way, way downhill. But again, um, so you could maybe, what are you going to mandate? Happy vaccine for all daycare workers so they're not spreading it to the babies. But it's the baby spreading it to the daycare worker. You know what? Um, when babies have hepatitis B, <laughs> yeah. when babies have hepatitis B, they're very sick. Okay. And so and uh, and so it, you're talking about things that possibilities that just don't happen. Right. And so we're going to mandate. I know you're just kind of I don't know. Being and also, I don't know if there's there. a downside to getting the hepatitis right. B. Right. Well, there's a lot yeah. of potential side effects, but I think um, the the bottom line is if if we're going to make mandatory laws, they have to be based on logic and common sense, not just. The mantra that vaccines are so great, you know, we should just automatically mandate every single one for every single child. My mind is still stuck on whooping cough, which is to say that if a child's not vaccinated, they could be at greater risk of getting the disease, right? But not necessarily at greater risk for carrying it. Okay. If they are not vaccinated. They're not vaccinated. Compared to a vaccinated child. Well, actually, so the whooping cough vaccine doesn't stop you from catching the disease. Does it? So m- everybody's at the same risk of catching the disease, whether you're vaccinated or not. Correct. Okay. But the vaccinated person's not going to feel as sick. Okay. Will the unvaccinated person who feels very sick 
they are no greater risk to somebody else correct. for spreading it than Absolutely the correct. vaccinated person who feels less sick? Correct. And in fact, the vaccinated person who feels less sick is going to be going to work and going to school and spreading the disease around mm -hmm. because their cough isn't really that bad. Mm -hmm. Whereas the unvaccinated kid who's having whooping cough fits, they're going to stay at home and spread the disease around to fewer people. So okay. it's so many interesting ways to look at this. And, and the whooping cough vaccine could actually be increasing the spread of whooping cough because it hides the symptoms of the disease. Sure. Very interesting. Yeah. Which are the diseases that do protect as a, as a community? Like yeah. So there's pretty good evidence that the measles vaccine does. You know, the, the chickenpox vaccine kind of maybe Okay. The the infant meningitis vaccines, uh, pneumococcal vaccine and Hib vaccine, those uh, maybe slash probably. Okay. Um, it's it's a real minority. I mean, I'd sort of be hard pressed to say any of the other vaccines have been proven to reduce the spread of a disease. I will say of, of the polio vaccine we used to use um, when you and I are growing up. That did reduce the spread of the disease, and that's how we got rid of polio. But we switched over to a new version of the vaccine now that doesn't prevent the spread of the disease because we've gotten rid of the disease in our country, so we don't need the older version. We have a newer, safer version mm -hmm. that's just going to protect you from getting paralyzed if we if ever have polio. an outbreak of the disease. So conceivably, this list that you just went through makes more sense at least to make a policy about for taking kids who are not vaccinated and keeping them away from other kids. Um, if you're okay with with you know uh, with creating you know a, a two class society and you know society that that weeds out certain people and gives them fewer rights and you know your kids you know are kind of dirty and dangerous so we're not going to let them into school. Well, I it's mean, a more logical conversation than forcing vaccines that forcing don't help. Everything. Right, other people. Right. I'll, I'll give you that. Okay. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'll give you. I'll give you that. Uh, you know, on on the surface, but I think there's so many deeper issues that make uh, mandatory vaccination policies problematic. Uh, a lot of ethical issues that, even if there is a public health benefit, um, vaccines don't always work. You know, even even a fully vaccinated child, someone who has the measles vaccine, there's still two to five percent likely to still catch measles and spread it to other people. Vaccines wear off. So even if you are vaccinated as a younger child, they'll wear off by the time you're a teenager. And so all these, you know, vaccinated kids can still catch it and spread these diseases. So there's no there's no way to perfectly 100 percent protect the schools, even with vaccines that that will work that way. OK, so many questions in yeah. my head. First of all, yeah. what is shedding? Shedding is um, when you get a live vaccine like chickenpox vaccine or measles, mumps, rubella, or rotavirus vaccine or the nasal flu vaccine, those live vaccine germs can leave your body and infect other people. That's what shedding is. Now, the good news is, is we think those shed live vaccine viruses are probably harmless to other people who, who pick up those germs in that they don't seem to make you sick. Okay. They don't give you any immunity. They don't seem to make you sick. But the weird thing is, I think a lot of what, what some people in the community who don't vaccinate is, these are GMO viruses and bacteria. Mm -hmm. the, these, these germs are not natural germs. Mm -hmm. So I think people who are unvaccinated, 
they don't want their kids to pick up those shed GMO viruses and bacteria. And, the, and there's, but they're neutral. They're not going to give them immunity. But they're, they're not, not going to give them, them immunity. Sick. They're not going to make them sick, but they're but still going to enter their body. And yeah. then, you know, what do they do to people? You know, I I feel like they're probably harmless. And I, I tell my patients not to worry about it. But do I really know? I'm not sure because it hasn't been well researched. Um, you talk about chicken pox as being a harmless disease. I mean, when I was a kid, everybody got chicken pox. Mm-hmm. You took off. You got the, it was uncomfortable. You took the weird bath, um, <laughs> you know, and it was, it was, I'm sure, very inconvenient for our parents when it happened. But is it harmless or do people sometimes really get sick from chickenpox? Yeah, tragically, I mean, we have about five Americans who die from chickenpox every year in our country. And that's um, with the vaccine. Um, that's with the vaccine. I think before the vaccine, uh, if I remember correctly, we might have had 50 people that, that used to die from complications of chickenpox every year. Uh, but that, I mean, that's out of our, our country of, you know, 350, you know, some million people. It's a pretty small chance. Yeah, very, very, very small But chance. I do buy a Powerball ticket and assume I'm going to win every time. <laughs> I know, I wish, right? Yeah, but but still, it's like 300 million to once. But I, um, in that sense, if you believe that the vaccine has no chance of doing harm, but could have this very tiny chance of saving your kid from death and... It would drive uh, parents to do it. The other argument that I hear about chickenpox vaccine is kids who are immunocompromised and couldn't get the vaccine themselves. And you said chickenpox might fall into that category of herd immunity. So would that be kind of a, a logically valid argument? Yeah, there, yeah there, there's a lot of ways you could look at chickenpox. And you have a good argument. Um, there's a couple of things. First of all, the, the vaccine is live and it does shed. So anyone who's immunocompromised, if they're they're not, they're actually advised to not be around anyone who's had a chickenpox vaccine within three weeks, because mm-hmm. they know the shed chickenpox viruses can make an immunocompromised child very sick oh, from the vaccine. Right, and also an immunocompromised child or adult who catches the disease will likely become very seriously ill. Now, ironically, um, kids who had the chickenpox vaccine while they were babies. If they become immunocompromised during their childhood, their vaccine they originally got will still work. Okay. Okay. So it's only those babies that never got a chickenpox vaccine, never had the disease, never had the vaccine. Now they're immunocompromised and they're they're susceptible to, to having a bad case of the disease. And so I mean, there, there's there's so many interesting ways to to look at the chickenpox. Uh, but I mean, we do need to to protect immunocompromised kids. I feel like we can work together in ways that don't involve vaccine mandates. Because immunocompromised kids are not the only fragile kids in school. There are kids that have been vaccine compromised, uh, kids who have had very serious vaccine reactions who now won't continue to get vaccines. And should they not be allowed in school? You know, they played ball, you know, they got with the program and and, and got vaccinated and, and were severely injured. And now they don't want to get their booster shots. So what? We kick them out of school because the immunocompromised kids are kind of more important but somehow? I don't know if other states, but California still has a medical exemption, right? So a kid like they that do. could get a medical exemption and say, you know what? This kid, because of what you just said, is maybe at greater risk of having severe complications from vaccines. So they are exempt. They can still go to school without having the vaccines. That is true now. 
for now. Um, if, if mainstream medicine had its way, though, they would take away medical exemptions like that. That's a little scary. Again, because those kids weren't really harmed by a vaccine. Sure, they had severe seizures and suffered brain damage the, the night after they got eight shots. But most doctors would say it's not related to the vaccine. So doctors aren't going to give that child a medical exemption. You can never prove that it came from the right. vaccine itself. Right. So, so I feel like as a society, we can work together to protect all these compromised kids equally mm-hmm. and allow them to all be in school. If and, you're allowed to even talk about it. Yeah. Well, yeah. And yeah. that's yeah. That's why we're talking about it. Okay. So what I see now is kids in California in particular who did not have all the vaccines. They may have had some. They may have had none. The mandate comes out, and all mm-hmm. of a sudden, there's an exemption for like a very tiny period of time. And then, if they're not up to speed on their vaccines, they're out of school. Right. So parents are struggling to figure out what to do when you have ten year olds, twelve year olds, fourteen year olds who have very few or no vaccines. Are these vaccines even known to be safe? Like you said, that we don't give DTAP to adults because adults have very bad reaction to DTAP. We don't tolerate it well. So they came up with TDAP. But what about all these other vaccines? Do we know how to give them safely to kids who are older? Yeah, see, you can give all the other vaccines. um, No, actually, most of the other vaccines to older kids. And um, you are right that once you've gone through puberty and you're like an older teenager, you will potentially have more severe side effects from some of the vaccines, especially MMR vaccine. But if you're kind of a middle-aged child, like elementary school, then th- there really doesn't seem to be any uh, difference between the vaccine side effects mm-hmm. at that age versus when, when you were younger. Um, so, yeah, they, they will allow, like, you know, th- all these kids to fully catch up on their vaccines in order to meet the school requirements. Um, and they can consider it, you know, reasonably safe enough to mandate that the children do that. Mm-hmm. But are, are you vaccinating older kids now? I am in my practice, yes. You have families that previously had not chosen to vaccinate and they would rather not vaccinate, but they don't have any any good medical reasons to, to opt out. Um, some of these families are choosing to go ahead and vaccinate. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and I provide vaccines in my office. Even though I said earlier, most of my families in my practice don't vaccinate. Mm-hmm. Some do, and it is a choice. Mm-hmm. And I, I provide them for people who, who do make that choice. Now we're really running out of time. If you don't mind staying a little bit later, I still have a few more questions. But can we talk a little bit about MMR and autism? You know, basically somebody who just wants to say that anybody who's thinking about vaccines versus just doing them is buying into the bogus science of the connection between MMR and autism. What's that all about? Yeah, well, I would like to, I guess, shift that question a little bit. Go for uh, it. In that... And it's interesting that you brought up MMR and autism. Um, I think the bigger question is vaccines as a whole mm-hmm. and autism, because uh, all the mainstream research that the government has done to show that there's no link between vaccines and autism, all they've really researched is they've looked at MMR and autism. MMR is one out of the 12 vaccines we give. And they've looked at mercury and autism. And to, to see if there's any relationship between those two factors, MMR and autism and mercury and autism. And the government research has not been able to show any connection. Mm-hmm. They've concluded that, you know, there doesn't seem to be any connection. The government has not looked at the 11 other vaccines mm-hmm. and autism 
and they have not looked at the entire complete vaccine schedule as a whole in autism. So it's really, it's, it's a largely unanswered question if you're going to actually look at the pure research. But what you'll hear in the, in the mainstream media, you'll hear the fact, in quotes, I'm doing air quotes that the <laughs> listeners can't, can't see, see <laughs> um, that we've proven vaccines don't cause autism. But the reality is they've shown MMR and mercury don't seem to be related. And that's all you can say scientifically. But that scares people. Mm-hmm. You know, the public would be scared if they, if they knew the government had not looked at the entire schedule. So the government's not going to talk about that. And the media is not going to talk about it. It's also in, just in my mind. I don't know. I'm not a researcher. But in my mind, it's interesting to say that no matter how many kids have an adverse reaction after having had a vaccine – the same body can't make the connection between that reaction and the vaccine because the proximity of when the reaction took place or when that illness took place, just proximity alone doesn't make the connection, right? But then how could you ever prove that <laughs> a vaccine can't cause you know, autism? I know. In fact, scientifically, you can't prove a negative. So you, you can't prove that vaccines don't cause autism. Right. All you can do is look to see if vaccines cause autism. You can look to see if you can prove a positive association. Mm-hmm. And, that, and that's kind of scientifically how you look at it. So um, although you'll always hear the media say we've proven vaccines don't cause autism. You can't prove the negative. Right. Exactly. Um, are there any vaccines, like if you had to go through that list of 12 are there vaccines that you feel like are more important? Yeah, I would say. Well, I'd say for infants, the the infant meningitis vaccines probably have a kind of a a higher degree of importance. Um, I think you could argue that the whooping cough vaccine, which is really the DTaP, the diphtheria tetanus whooping cough vaccine, somewhat important just because whooping cough is such a bad disease. Um, I'd say those are kind of my top three that I think maybe, you know, if you're going to argue, if you're going to, you know, rate them and rank them, probably the three most important for babies and young kids. Um, when you say three, you're saying, meningi- oh, two meningitis? Yeah, there's two meningitis ones. Okay. Yeah, Hib and, and pneumococcal And meningitis. then also whooping cough. Yeah. What about two categories of people? One is people who travel to other countries where some of these diseases are more prevalent. And you also mentioned with the whooping cough, you know, when you have access to good health care or some of the other diseases, even measles or mumps or rubella, if you have access to health care, you don't die from these diseases. You get treatment and you get better and you go. But what if you don't have great access to health care? Even in this country, people don't sometimes have good access to health care. Right. I mean, the, yeah, the diseases will be uh, more risky in, in that situation. You look at you know developing countries. Oh, yeah, measles kills a lot of people in developing countries. So does whooping cough. Actually, so does tetanus. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say I see that the media uses that argument very often in order to scare Americans into vaccine compliance. They'll say, yeah, I mean, no child has died from measles in the United States, what, in about uh, – 17 or 18 years, but, you know, tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands are dying in Africa from measles. So we're going to use the African uh, example to make sure everyone in America is getting the, the measles vaccine. But you're saying that's because they don't have the same access to health care should they get the disease. Correct. Correct. Or, or nutrition. Uh, they, to they don't have the same the nutritional level yeah, in order to handle the disease. Um, right. So, But I think uh, for travel, for the most part, 
I think healthy Americans can travel anywhere in the world that tourists would normally travel to. Mm -hmm. And you don't really have to worry much about catching a serious disease. Uh, you know, some of my patients who don't vaccinate, they're worried about going on vacation to Mexico or to Europe or uh, South America or the Pacific, um, places all the typical tourist destinations. I feel like you can reasonably feel safe about you know traveling as an unvaccinated family to most of those places. What if you go off the beaten path? Yeah, if you're going off the beaten path, that's a different situation. Mm -hmm. And that's like an individual conversation depending on where you're going. But it's one you can't really have with most pediatricians. You're right. You're right. You know, you're going against the grain. Am I? I, I didn't know. Yeah, just in case you weren't aware. Newsflash. Yeah. I mean, yeah. your community doesn't really agree with you on a lot of this. Does that put a giant target on your back? Um. Yeah, it, it does. I feel like the the general pediatric community, most of them have never met me. Mm -hmm. um, and they kind of make uh, characterizations about me that I think uh, they, they wouldn't know whether or not it's true because they never met me or talked to me personally. So I think a lot of um, most of the pediatric community thinks I'm completely against vaccines and that I, I share all kinds of, you know, false information with people. Uh, I just I mean, <laughs> Wait, I would say I know more about vaccines than almost every single one of them. Right. And I know what I'm talking about. And I, I like to share objective, neutral information without an agenda. Which is really, and, really hard to find. So I'm glad yeah. you do it. But I think we said in the opening, you believe vaccines work. Mm hmm. We believe vaccines uh, can help protect people from severe illness and death. You don't necessarily believe every child should, number one, needs every vaccine that we manufacture. And number two, especially, sh should be forced into every vaccine that we manufacture. Right. You sound like you come from more of an informed consent perspective. These are drugs that we give you during pregnancy or to your babies and children. This is some of the pros and this is some of the cons. What do you want to do? Am I reading into it, or is that your Absolutely. Approach? I, mean, I feel like I'm uh, in my office right now. That's kind <laughs> of my entire day is all about providing informed consent. And thankfully, you now have a podcast where yeah. you have in-depth conversations about topics like the questions we talked about today. Your podcast is called The Vaccine Conversation with Melissa and Dr. Bob. Who's Melissa? Melissa is my partner in our nonprofit organization, and I met her kind of on the speaking circuit when we were fighting against the mandatory vaccine law in California. You know, when I saw her speak and I started to talk to her, I realized she's way smarter than me, <laughs> you know, a lot more intelligent, a lot better of a speaker, um, a great spokesperson. She really knows her numbers and her data. And I thought, gosh, I really need to partner with this person because, uh, you know, she, she makes what I do much better. And, and it's, I think it's a lot more fun to do this kind of work with someone who's better at it than you are. And I kind of uh, finally convinced her to do the podcast because, as, as you can hopefully tell, I love talking about this. And Melissa and I have spent the last few years talking about vaccine issues and writing blogs on social media. We thought, why don't we just sit down and have this conversation live, you know, on a, on a podcast? And every episode is basically like one topic. We'll basically take one little aspect of the vaccine conversation and break it down for 45 minutes to an hour and talk in depth about that one little issue, whether it's a disease or a concept or a controversy or a news story or a disease outbreak or a new vaccine or whatever it is. And we talk about it and uh, I have fun. Uh, 
In fact, if you're going to spend a lot of your free time doing something, you really got to make sure you enjoy yeah, doing it. Time. And vaccines are, are it for me. That's why I love talking about it. It's, it's a lot of fun to have that conversation with her because it's a conversation you're not allowed to have. The topic of vaccines is now taboo right. in the public. And so we, we have the conversation with each other and you get to listen in and then send us comments and we have guests on the show. And so that hopefully we will start bringing this topic back to society so that more and more people will start having conversations. I mean, will you bring in guests who are on the edges, the ones who are very, very, very pro every child gets every vaccine? You know, they will not come on the show. I, I would, the I would show. invite people uh, who are on the fringes on the show. They won't come on. I should give it a try, though. Invitation. Maybe someone will surprise well, me. Open invitation. Right. right. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's a lot of fun, you know, the vaccine conversation. And we have our, our nonprofit is uh, Immunity Education Group. And um, again, it's... What do you do through the nonprofit? Well, it's basically, it's like a neutral, objective source of information. It's our, our .org website. And um, if you're just looking, if anyone, you know, any people that just want to read something that's neutral, that's uh, trustworthy and objective, it doesn't have an agenda, you know, that's kind of what our website is for. You know, the argument against your neutrality mm -hmm. is your conflict of interest is it's very hard to find a pediatrician or family doctor who is open to mm -hmm. this type of information. By going outside the box, you, you know, attract a practice building element or writing a book, you attract, mm -hmm. a, you know, a clientele. Mm -hmm. What do you say about that? That's fair. I mean, I, th that is that is fair. I think... Um, Everyone who doesn't want the entire CDC schedule of vaccines, I think they, they deserve a place to go. I mean, they need a pediatrician just like anyone else does. And I love being that pediatrician. I'm, uh, I guess what I would say to that is I'm full. I mean, my practice is full. I, I, I mean, we always love getting new babies. Mm -hmm. um, we love getting new patients. And we've never been closed to, to new patients. But I've always felt overworked and full. Mm -hmm. So it's like I'm not out there trying to get more patients. Yeah. Um, well, it's interesting. You said even in, in schooling, you were just fascinated by vaccines. Yeah. It's not I just love it. Not something yeah. that came, you know, like as an opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. And and I, I've kind of felt, I mean, I mean, I, I have a great family, you know, my wife and our three kids and two of my kids are married and, you know, I have a wonderful family. And But in this vaccine fight, it's easy to feel alone sometimes. I mean, even though I have, I have all my patients and so many people in the middle ground who are against vaccine mandates, really, they like to tell me they appreciate what I do. They appreciate my work. And I, I like hearing that. But kind of like personally, you often feel isolated and alone. Yeah. You're like you're the only one, even though there are lots of other doctors that feel the way I do. So it's kind of fun to go out and do work like podcasts or doing my own podcast with Melissa is just to have a, a buddy that I can have fun with and chat with. And it kind of just makes the work more enjoyable when you're not doing it alone. Mm -hmm. And I think it gives you the energy and the motivation to get out there and, and, and do it. I think, unfortunately, we live at a time where polarization is sort of invading many topics and personal choices. Mm -hmm. And polarization by itself is dangerous. It tends to lead, in my mind, to violence ultimately. Mm, Instead yeah. of focusing on what we have in common with each other, we focus on the few things where we disagree and we become violently strong yes. in our, our stance yeah. on, on those issues. So unless I think you're making all of this up and it's total <laughs> bullcrap, 
then I really appreciate having a source, somebody who I can just sit down and ask questions to, especially about something as important as our children's health. So mm-hmm. I'm deeply grateful for your coming. Well, and thanks. And I'll, I'll always tell you the truth because I, I think that's important. And, you know, you know, vaccinated and unvaccinated, we're all, like you said, we're a lot more similar than we are different. And our kids can go to school together. They can play together. <gasps> families can get together. No one's a danger to anybody else. The and, horror. And this middle ground needs to needs to make sure the society stays together on this. What's uh, the best place to find you online? Well, I'm on, uh, you know, Dr. Bob Sears is my Facebook page. I'm there a lot. You know, we have a immunity education group has a, a Facebook page, immunityeducationgroup.org. But I'd say, again, for me, the, the most fun place to be right now is the vaccine conversation because that's just uh, – I mean, it's kind of like this hour. You know, no offense, but Melissa has a lot more energy <laughs> a lot more energy than you do, uh, Elliot, and, uh, and, and then I do put together. And uh, yeah, this is kind of a little more laid back. You know, Melissa kind of gets fired up sometimes, and I do too. But that's, I think, where you can go to, to listen and learn more and, and kind of see what we're all about and get educated. Yeah. And tell your friends, you know, and bring them into the vaccine conversation because it's something we should all be talking about. I appreciate that. And I'm going to check it out myself. At home, thanks for listening to the Informed Pregnancy Podcast. If you have a topic you'd like us to explore or discuss, send us your suggestions to info at informedpregnancy.com.